You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So you'll probably notice in there we have a new memory verse for 2024, and you'll see it in your bulletin there. It's 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. So before we actually study this passage, let's recite the verse together, the reference first. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Well, since 2001, we have always set a memory verse before the congregation every year. Uh, And I'm always amazed at how the verse that primarily I pray about and discuss and pick seems to take on a significance in a life beyond itself. So in other words, this past year, you may recall we did Matthew 16, 18, and 19, about just the different challenges and Christ saying that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his work. And there are always challenges that come in the life of a church, whether those be financially, whether it be the surprise tax bill from our town, um, that that verse grows in its significance as we go through the year. Uh, And I expect the same thing to happen with this verse for 2024. 
Because as you listen to 1 John 4, 7, it brings up a very relevant issue, a concern not only for many churches today, but a concern for our church as well. How do you deal with inner conflict? Not, not so much what the world's doing, but when, when Satan seeks to work within the church, how are we supposed to respond to that? And that's exactly what John is addressing here in this epistle in chapter 4. So I'd like to give you three words to kind of hang this passage on, and then we'll expand on what's included in each of those three words. First one is simply instruction. Uh, this, this is meant to be a, a hands-on letter, uh, to do something with this. So we're going to look at instruction first. What does John tell us? Then we're going to look at illustration. Uh, we all need illustrations sometimes, especially when you get to dealing with spiritual abstract truths. So we're going to look at instruction, illustration, and then implementation. Uh, what, what are we supposed to do with this? And I'm assuming that, and I think there's great evidence for this, uh, the writer of this epistle is the Apostle John. Uh, he does not mention his name here at all doesn't even in 2nd and 3rd John, uh, but there's so many similarities between the Gospel of John, some other hints in it, uh, that I can say with confidence that John is the author of this, uh, the apostle whom Jesus described as the one he loved, is going to give us instructions on love. Look at me at verses 7 and 8, which I just read for you. Notice that you have a very simple, straightforward exhortation here. Beloved, let us love one another. You can't get any simpler, any clearer than that instruction. Uh, these epistles are often referred to as general or Catholic letters. And what that means is they're, they're universal. He's not writing to one church. It's a letter meant to be circulated to different churches. So it's relevant to God's people then. It's extremely relevant to God's people now. You may have caught that as I read this passage, I'm reading from the ESV. And there's a number of reasons why I'm going to be referring to the ESV. Uh, one is my present NIV Bible it basically needs to be retired. Uh, it's falling apart so badly um, that I'm going to go with the ESV. It's a little more literal. Uh, I think it's a little closer to kind of translation-wise might help us get to the understanding of different texts. And you'll notice one difference here. In the instruction, it begins with beloved. The NIV translates that dear friends, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but beloved has a much deeper kind of emphasis to it. He's, he's writing to those that he holds a deep bond of affection and attachment with. So here you have John, maybe in his 80s, writing this, talking about those that he deeply loves in the Lord. And you'll notice 1 John only has five chapters in it. Six times this term beloved is going to come up, or dear friends. So he has a vested interest in those he's writing to here. This isn't a lecture that he's giving. He's writing in many ways with a deep pastoral concern. 
that knowing they're facing many challenges. And so earlier in the book, one of the challenges is going to be false teaching. But in particular, in chapter four, it's the challenge of inner conflict in the church. That's what he's zeroing in on here. And so as you look at this, notice if you would how the letter begins. Just flip back to 1 John chapter 1 to kind of see his pastoral heart here, which is key to understanding what he's saying. Notice in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He wants to see them rejoicing in who they are in Christ Jesus. He wants to see God at work in their midst. That's, that's his desire. One of the reasons he's writing this letter. Then if you go to the end of it, 1 John chapter 5, look what he says in verse 13. He kind of adds to that, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's a pastoral intent of this letter. I want you to be joyful in Christ. I, I want you to have assurance of salvation. And where he's going to go with that is assurance of salvation is going to be displayed in a very practical way in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. So it is pastoral instruction motivated by his love. But we also want to add to that, it's not just an emotional letter. It's not just that John is motivated by a desire to see them get along, but it's rooted in sound doctrine and teaching. And so you see this in verse 7, where immediately following the simple exhortation, love one another, he says, for love is from God. And notice right away he takes us back to the source what, what kind of love is he talking about? Well, it's rooted in the very divine nature of who God is. Notice he goes on in verse 7 and says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So think about what he said toward the end of the letter. I want you to have assurance of your salvation. One of the ways that's a fruit of assurance is the measuring line, how much do you love one another in Christ Jesus, in the church? How, how evident is that? Because he says the one who does that, they have been born of God. Notice he clearly says this is a work that God must do. It's not a work that we do. We have a responsibility to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But this uniting, making us one, is the work of Christ. I don't know if you think of this, but when I think of this, whoever loves has been born of God, I immediately think of John 3, where the same writer, Apostle John, is writing about Nicodemus. Remember the discussion with Jesus and Nicodemus? How does somebody become born again? And Jesus says to him, it's not something that's by human decision or anything like that. It is the work of the Spirit. So he highlights for us, God is the source of perfect love. But then notice in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. So here's one of those verses that sometimes, even as Christians, we latch on to just one aspect of this verse. And that is we might latch on to the God is love part, which we think sometimes may mean, well, the church is never to, to discipline, never to correct, never to hold one another accountable, because that doesn't sound too loving. But that's not what John's saying here. He's saying, yes, God is love, but not exclusively as that's his only attribute. He is also holy. He is also righteous. He is also a God who judges because he mentions judgment later on in the text that, that if one truly has the love of God, there, there isn't a fear of judgment or condemnation. So it's good for us to stop and realize John is emphasizing Love comes from God. That is perfect love. That, that perfect love is harmonized in all of God's attributes. Even when he judges, it is in love. Even when you have painful trials enter your life, that is in love that God ordains that to be. Just like for those of us who have young children and, and need to discipline them, it is done not out of hatred, but, but really out of love, a sincere care and pastoral shepherding attempt. But notice again, if you look at verse 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Now remember, John's writing to believers. And he's saying, if this is not evident in your life, it raises some serious questions. Because God is love. And if you're saying you're in union with Christ and with God, then there should be a family resemblance. We should see that. Just like you see people who you can see their adult children and you can say, I can see the parent in that person. That's what John's kind of saying here. I, you, people should see us and see something that says that they're, they're Christ followers. They're, there's something different about them. But I want to get back to this one question. Does this mean only people who are Christians can show love? And I think we'd all agree, no, because we can think of people who are not believers that are happily married, people who are not believers who can be very kind and compassionate. That's because of common grace, and everyone's made in the image of God. So people can reflect good to a certain level. But anything that falls short of God being the object of our adoration and worship and love is unrighteousness. And so therefore it is true. The kind of perfect love that John's referring to here can only be demonstrated by those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So if we're sitting here and we know Christ, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he gives us this simple instruction. You're, you're to love one another. And again, we're defining love now based on the character of God. Our world would say love means you just support everyone. Accept them for who they are, whatever they want to do. Well, that's not the biblical definition of love. That's not the attribute of God when we say God is love. 
how absurd if we tried to say, well, God just will let you do whatever you want, but yet he's holy. Well, those would be two contradictory statements. If he's holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He won't tolerate sin, and neither should we. So we've dealt with the first term in instruction. Now we get to illustration. And if you think back maybe on yourself in college or in your jobs, all of us have different learning styles. So some people learn really well auditory. They, they can hear it and they grasp it, they take it in. Other people are visual learners. They, they, they have to see it written out and that helps them incorporate it. Uh, other people are just hands-on. They, they need someone to show them and watch them. And if they do it once, they, they kind of grasp it. Uh, and others are certainly people who, again, learn in a combination of those styles. Which is why John then gives us an illustration. So what does it mean to love in perfect love? And you see this illustration in verses 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John's saying, if you're wondering what does that love look like, well then simply look at the revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's the visual. That's the hands-on. That's the auditory message. So perfect love is reflected in Christ. And notice he uses the verb manifested. The love of God was manifested. Uh, this means it was put right in your face. It, it was obvious. It was clearly shown to us that this is what divine love looks like. And that's why it's always helpful to use the church calendar to kind of think of we just celebrated Christ's birth but his incarnation, his life, his ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension are all part of the manifestation of God's love. Because even now we would speak of where is Jesus Christ? He's not in a manger. He's in heaven. And what is he doing in heaven? He's interceding for you and me before the Father. So his love is ongoing. And when he returns, that love will continue to be manifested as we will dwell forever in his presence. And we will dwell forever with those who also are in Christ Jesus. And we have additional testimony of this. Again, think of John's words in the opening of his gospel, where he says, we have seen his glory. Now we know John was one of the disciples. When he says, we've seen his glory, he's covering everything. We, we've heard him talk. We, we've heard him speak. We've, we've seen him with our eyes. We, we've seen his miracles. We've, we've eaten food with him. We, we've touched him. I mean, all those different levels of learning, John's saying, we know that he is divine love. In the flesh, fully God and fully man. Then you have 2 Peter who says, we've seen his majesty. And it's easy to put together, what is Peter referring to when he says that in the opening of 2 Peter? 
It's referring to the transfiguration. And who was present at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. What a reminder to us as he writes this, this love was manifested for us. That's what John's thinking. And yet, even we today have something greater because we have the complete revelation of Scripture. So it's not as if we should look back and say, well, I wish I was back then. No, no, because we even have something better than Peter, James, and John had. We have the full word of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there's another word in here that gives us an illustration of the kind of love that Christians should have for one another in the body of Christ. And it's the word in verse 10, he was the propitiation for our sins. Now, it's kind of sad that word has fallen out of usage today, um, but it's a very good theological term, and it refers to how in Christ the wrath of God against us because of our sin was satisfied. And kind of think about that, that he just said God is love, and now he doesn't see it a contradiction to say, yeah, but there's God's wrath. And that wrath, we were the targets of it. We were the objects of it because of our sinfulness. And yet in Christ, that punishment was satisfied. You do not want to make the mistake of thinking that somehow forgiveness is God just turning the other way. He, he cannot turn the other way. He cannot act as if it never happened. It, it has to be satisfied. There, there's a debt that has to be paid. And so that debt was paid through the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross. But that brings us to kind of a question now. How does that look on the ground? Because he's given us a great illustration. And we could go through many places in Scripture, Romans, where it says, you know, God has shown you how much he loves you and that he died for you while we were still sinners. So no, like we were meeting him halfway, no, where we were already turning our lives around, but, but while we were still dead in sin. But let's consider the third aspect, that is implementation. John's purpose is this is a pastoral letter. So it's not a lecture. And he's not just going to tell them something and then not say, what do you do with this? So notice verse 11 and 12 for implementation. He says, by this we know that we abide in him. Or excuse me, back up to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he started in verse 11 with that instruction. Now he comes back to us. And you want to keep in mind in that verse when he says, we also ought. This is not an option. He's not making a suggestion like you, you really should do this. But hey, you know what? Not everyone can. Some people are too difficult for this to work. He says, no, you, you, you ought to. You have a debt. You have an obligation to love one another in Christ. Why? Well, what did he just tell us? Look what Christ has done for you. That perfect love is now to be evidence in those who are claiming that they love God. 
So what does that look like? Well, you might look for a moment here at verse 12, verse 13, 15, and 16. There's one word that keeps coming up. It's the word abide or abides. And he keeps saying, if you abide in Christ, this perfect love will be increasingly displayed in your life. Again, very interesting. Think of Jesus' words to his own disciples when he talked about abiding in him and his final instructions before heading out to be crucified. Here John picks up on that same language and talks about implementation. The, the love of Christ is to be evident in us. It is to abide, to, to dwell, to remain, to take up resonance. So he's not referring to a feeling, although true obedience should eventually lead to a change in attitude and emotions, but, but not the opposite. And I think too often sometimes as <clears throat> Christians, we're, we're waiting for a feeling. Like, I'll, I'll do that when I feel like I, I'm ready to do that. There's nowhere in this text where it says anything about that. This, this is strict obedience. It's saying, keep before you what Christ has done, that illustration, and now realize growing in your love for one another in the church is proof that you know God and that he abides in you. It's evidence. I mean, what, what a way to put that for all of us. And it doesn't matter what maybe grievance we're dealing with here. He's saying this, this is the reality. And that's going to take sacrifice. Because again, think of Christ's death. It was a sacrificial love. Christ died for you and for me. And you see this element of sacrifice. Notice in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then go down to verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. God's love is perfect. Jesus' love is perfect. John now says, by us displaying sacrificial love, we are displaying, and God's love is being perfected in us. It, it's being worked out in our lives. It's becoming put on display. And the whole purpose of that is for the glory and honor of God. We sometimes dwell on the fact that, well, false doctrine is terrible. You know, we really need to come down on false teaching. Absolutely. But we should come down as hard as we do on false teaching on believers who are not loving one another. In God's eyes, those are both sins. They're both offenses to him. I mean, you can't parse it any other way than John saying here, the implementation of all this is key. Because that is how God's love is perfected, how it is worked out and brought to its ultimate goal through the lives of his children. Notice in verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, 
because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. John reminds us we have been given the ability in Christ to do this. So if you're reading this and saying, I don't know if I can do that. Well, in one sense, you're absolutely correct. You, you cannot do this. But if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have no excuse for not doing this. And that's really what he's saying here. Then as well, if you drop down to verse 17 and 18, notice he says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John kind of brings us to a close and says, if this isn't implemented in your life, realize as a Christian you stand in fear of condemnation because there's an area here that's not conforming to the word of God. Now, as a Christian, we should always fear God. So he's not saying fear and reverence for God is just removed now because you know Christ. No, there should always be that fear, but never now a fear of condemnation. And so what a picture to us of what Christian love should look like. Now, not how our world twists God as love, but, but how love is truly displayed and put before us here and said, this is the task of every church, of every believer to pursue this at all costs. So it kind of prompts a question, and that would simply be this. What sacrificial efforts have you made to build relationships to show love with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I didn't ask simply what efforts, but what sacrificial efforts have you made? And there's a big difference. Because John is telling us that a person who is a growing Christian will grow in their love for one another in the body of Christ. And the opposite would also be true. A person who is not growing as a Christian or is walking in disobedience to the Lord will have a diminishing love for others in the body of Christ. So what a relevant message, not just for the church in general, but I think especially for our church. And as we keep that verse before us, more than just remembering the words, let's always go back to the context and intent of what's said here. It's a pastoral letter to put before us the sacrificial love of Christ that is to be perfected in us as we display that same love increasingly to one another. Let me pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for the clear example of your love for us in Christ. How that is a source of comfort to us, how that is a source of strength, but help us to connect that with the way in which we are to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.